Welcome to the Confident Retirement Podcast. Is doing the most important things alone a good idea? How comfy are you with your choices when it comes to life's biggest decisions? What is real peace of mind with financial confidence and how can you get it? Chris Fleming and Mark Peachy are the founders of LPF Advisors in Sarasota, Florida. On the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple, common sense and financial wisdom. And now, here are your hosts from LPF Advisors. Hey, everybody. I want to welcome you to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors. I'm your host here, as always, Chris Flaming, And today, I have the honor of welcoming Brian Bernhardt to the show. As counsel with Fox Rothschild LLP, he focuses his practice helping clients in IRS tax controversies and IRS litigation. He is well-versed in the Internal Revenue Code. How many people can say that? And is a frequent author and speaker on a variety of legal and tax matters. Brian, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. Yeah, so you you have a very interesting history. You weren't always a tax attorney, so I'm hoping you can kind of take us through that, your previous life, and how you got where you are today. Well, I decided to be a lawyer um, mostly as a kid and in college. My father was a lawyer back in the days before computers. He'd come home with letters and trash, and I would go through his trash and read all his letters and pretend to be a lawyer. In college, I realized that most of the classes I took when I had to write a paper, I ended up talking about some aspect of being a lawyer. Mm. So I went to law school. Uh, I did become a tax lawyer, but in the middle of my career, I took a break. Uh, after my wife and I had our first child, we decided to move back home where I grew up. I went to work for my father and I did creditor collections work for a number of years and then came back to being a tax lawyer. So I had a break in the middle. I started out doing tax work. I plan on finishing my career doing tax work, but there was a little break in the middle to try something else, uh, which I really appreciated. And it was really enjoyable to work with my father as well. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. When the family business stuff works well, it really works well. Absolutely. So I noticed um, on your profile that you're a formal trial attorney with the Internal Revenue Service. Yes. So what, what did that entail? <laughs> so I worked for the IRS as a lawyer, more or less trying to get taxpayers to pay their taxes. Okay. Um, it's, it's one thing when you say to someone at a cocktail party, you're a lawyer, they sort of look at you a little sideways. And then when you say you're a tax lawyer, it's a little more sideways. And then when you say you work for the IRS as a trial lawyer, people run away from right, you. Nobody right, wants right. to talk to you. They don't right. give you your name. So what would happen is there's a long process that's involved in getting to a point where the IRS lawyers get involved. But eventually, when taxpayers get that last notice, they have to sue the IRS in, in most cases. And I was yeah. one of the lawyers for the IRS that defended the IRS and said, yes, you do actually owe that money we're going to get a judgment against you that says you owe the money. Uh, and I did that for a while. It was a very unpopular job outside <laughs> of the office, but it was a great experience. Yeah. Uh, you really get to see how the sausage is made. You get to see how the people at the IRS think, not just the trial lawyers, but the managers, the supervisors, and the higher ups in the government. It's been an invaluable experience yeah. during my career to have spent time at the IRS. Yeah, I'm sure that, that you know the art of this is kind of lost today, but it used to be kind of common knowledge that if you wanted to argue or argue your point or debate something, it was a good idea to argue the other side to deeply understand what where they were coming from and what their points were, so then you could better defend your position. 
right? So I could, I could see where that would be really helpful in what you do now, having, having worked in the government for the IRS, where that experience is invaluable. Well, it's not just knowing how the people at the government think, but it's understanding the process and procedure. And that's really one of the areas that I focus on a lot when I work with clients is not just being able to advise them on specific tax rules, and this is how the law applies here, but being able to say, this is the process the IRS is going to use. This is the procedure. This is what the Internal Revenue Manual says, which is the guidebook that the IRS uses to know what they need to do and how they do it. And understanding to get from point A to point B to point C uh, and how I can guide my clients through that process. Okay. And I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit, that process on a high level. So is there something, if you could go back and give the younger Brian some advice, is there something that you wish you knew then that you know now? So, so much. One of the things that I've learned over the years is the people you work for and the people you work with are so much more important. The 25-year-old me graduating from law school wanted certain things in their job, certain kinds of law firms, certain locations, certain kinds of practices. And what I've learned over 25 years is, oh, that's great. But the people you work with on a day-to-day basis, you spend most of your life with. Those people, it's so important to have those people be people you like and people you respect and people you enjoy. I've also learned because I've done a number of different things, the tax work, working with my father, uh, some appellate litigation, that it's a great thing to take opportunities when they when they come to you. Mm. Uh, I, I try to say yes when opportunities come, even if it's in an area that I don't know real well. I think that my 25-year-old self was probably so focused on learning everything that was coming right to my plate in the one specific area. And my 50-year-old self is much more open to learning new things and being more engaged uh, in the context of being a lawyer and the broader ideas and the broader things that my clients need. Yeah, that that's so true. I mean, even if you're married, if you go to a office building or something for your job, you're op- oftentimes spending more time with those people than you are with your spouse. Because you, you go home and you hang out for a while, then you go to bed and then you right. back to work. So, yeah, well, I mean, it's changed a little bit now because there's so much more flexibility for being home. But one of the things the pandemic taught me is I really do love my wife and I love my kids and I love being around them. And it's amazing how little time we all actually spend together, except on weekends. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because of that, if you don't like the people you work with, I've learned you just can't do it. You come home unhappy and then you're not you don't treat your family the way you want to treat them. And I've been very fortunate in my career to make the kinds of choices that have enabled me to work with people I like and clients I like as well. I think that's yeah. just as important, making sure the people I'm dealing with on the phone, on videos, in meetings are people who share my values and whose values I share and who I get along with. So do you think that's probably the area of your practice that you get the most enjoyment out of is the relationships? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what sure. do you think? So I think there's two things. Uh, one is definitely the re- relationships I have, not just with my clients, but with my co-counsels here at my law firm, with opposing counsel a lot of times. One one of the interesting things about working as a trial lawyer against the IRS is that there are vastly more people in private practice than at the IRS. So you end up working against the same people quite often at the IRS. So you form a relationship with those people as well. So definitely relationships are up there. The other thing that I find really stimulating is the intellectual curiosity that I get out of the work that I do. Tax law changes, not just you know every month or with every year, but every day I read 
three newsletters and two blogs that tell me what's happened in the last 24 hours. Uh, I get weekly updates. I get monthly updates. There's always new things to learn, always things that are going on that affect the clients I have and the kind of cases I have. And it's really interesting. Not many people can say this. It's really interesting to read about the new things that are happening in the internal revenue code. Yeah. Right. But you're the guy. I found the one person. You're the guy. Okay. So what do you think is the biggest misconception typically that people have about what you do? Like a prospective client, they got in touch with the firm, you're going to meet with them. What's a big misconception you help them overcome? So I think a lot of the misconceptions that I face are the result of television advertisements from (laughs) all kinds of, of, right. You get all these, these companies that will, we promise we'll save you 90 cents on the dollar. We'll see, we'll get you in a payment plan immediately. And the reality is it's just not that straightforward. Yes, I can get clients out of paying tax sometimes, but it depends what kind of assets they have. Yeah. If you have assets worth a million dollars and you owe $200,000, the IRS is, just isn't going to give you a break. If it's reversed, sure, it's a, lot, it's a lot more simple to do that. But I think that really the one thing that people don't understand is how slow things are. Um, it is a process. You send a letter into the IRS and it, it before the pandemic, it would be three months before you yeah. heard back. Now it's up to six to nine months. And it's not the people at the IRS's fault. The IRS isn't funded as well as it should be. They have so much work. Uh, they got hit by the pandemic, just like every other business. Things with the IRS have, have really slowed down. It's mm. tough to get people on the telephone. Um, it's tough to meet in person, which almost never happens anymore. Things just are very slow. And yeah. people want their, when they have a tax problem, it really bears on them. And I, and I try to tell my clients, look, take all that pain that you have, all that suffering, put it on my shoulders. I'll take care of it. The letters are going to start coming to me. The calls are going to come to me. I'll let you know what's going on. I'll let you know what has to happen, but it's going to be a while. But when you have that, that cloud hanging over your head, you don't want it to take a while. And I think that yeah. is, for my clients, one thing that I constantly have to reiterate is, it's a slow process, but things are yeah. going exactly as we imagined they would. Yeah, and it's outside of their control for the, right. for the most part. Okay, so maybe give me a description of a typical client that you work with or maybe an ideal client that, sure. you, that you work with. So the kinds of clients I really enjoy working with are small to medium-sized businesses uh, and their owners. Typically, it's going to be a handful of owners. I have some clients that are quite large. Uh, and I deal with CFOs or CEOs, but a lot of my clients tend to be small business owners, um, the businesses themselves. Uh, they'll come in with a letter from the IRS. The IRS says that in, in 2019, X, Y, and Z happened, yeah. and I owe $2.5 million. What's going on? How do I deal with that? I look at the letters. I ask them for the documents. I get in touch with the IRS. I talk to the revenue agent. I collect as much information as I can. I do my own factual investigation and research with the goal of trying to figure out if and how the IRS made a mistake. There's really no typical client because there's so many different kinds of taxes. It could be an income tax issue. It could be an employer who didn't send over to the IRS, the Social Security, Medicare, and and, um, withholding taxes. It could be somebody, and this has happened a lot in the last few years, People who have foreign bank accounts, they haven't reported to the IRS. And there's huge penalties for those. I'm working on a lot of conservation easements in the last couple of years. People have donated land to 501c3 organizations, taking large deductions. And the IRS is arguing that, among other things, the value of the deduction is, is too large. 
there's a whole host of different kinds of issues. But the kind of clients that I like are clients that, uh, one, have interesting issues. Uh, two, understand that there's a process for doing things. Uh, in other words, they run a business. They know that there's a process and procedure for how everything works. Uh, and obviously, uh, at the end of the day, I always try to make sure before I start that I can give some type of an estimate, whether it's an estimate for an entire project or for different pieces of a project. And I try to be as upfront and transparent as I can. So obviously, an ideal client is one who can say, we can do that. Uh, yeah. We can make this kind of a payment. Okay. So you, now you've kind of touched on this a few times. Is there anything you might add, Brian, to the steps that occur in the process of like an IRS collection or an audit? Yeah, there's this long continuum of how things work. And <laughs> the, the start right. is, is you open your mailbox and you get a letter, you know, hi, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. And they want to look at a tax year. They think there's an issue. And you go through an entire audit. It could take three months. It could take three years. The audit is resolved uh, either favorably or not. If it's not, then there's a chance to appeal administratively within the IRS. And that process can take anywhere from a few months to a year, a year and a half itself. Ultimately, there'll be a resolution that you agree upon or not. And at that point, as a taxpayer, you have a couple of choices. You can pay the tax, file a refund claim. And if the IRS ignores you or it takes too long, you can file a lawsuit in district court, uh, wherever you happen to be living. Another option is to file a lawsuit in the tax court. The tax court is a prepayment form, which means you don't have to pay the tax. You can simply file a petition in the tax court. That's what the vast majority of taxpayers do, because most people just don't have that kind of money to prepay. Now, if someone came to me and said, Brian, you have $50,000 in tax, I don't have $50,000 sitting around to pay and then try to recover it afterwards. Uh, litigation can take years. I mean, I'm currently litigating cases uh, that deal with 2013, 14, and 15. Wow. So it, it can go on. This process goes on for a very long time. Mm. Once the litigation's over, if you as the taxpayer lose, the IRS still has to try to collect money from you. And that process can go on for 10 years. That's how long the IRS has to try to collect it. Okay. So whether you didn't file a return and the IRS says you owe this much money, or you did file it, but you didn't pay, or the IRS decides you didn't pay enough and they're coming after you. There's all kinds of things the IRS can do that I'll work with clients to try to avoid, try to work out payment plans, try to send money in to keep the IRS at bay. And ultimately, the goal is to reach some kind of a resolution, yeah. ideally as early as possible, a resolution that everybody agrees on. And this is the amount that's owed and my client can pay it. And then uh, the issue solved. One of the things that I try to do when I'm going through this process if I find that my client has, has a process or procedure internal to them that has caused this problem with the IRS, I try to work on them on changing that. So if they're treating some kind of stream of income one way and it should be treated a different way, and that's why the IRS is looking into them, I try to work with them to make sure that going forward, they're doing it the proper way. And because of that, I deal with a client for a very long time. And then if I do my job right, I might never see them again. Yeah. In fact, they hope they never see me again. Yeah. Most of the times when I'm done with a client, they say something along the lines of, thank you, this has been great. I hope I never talk to you again. Right. Because if they talk to me again, they're probably in trouble again. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and you're fine with that if you don't see them again. Yeah, that's right. 
Okay, so I asked you earlier uh, misconceptions that people have about working with you, but I'm, I'm also curious what you feel like is the biz- biggest misconception that people have about owing the IRS or being audited. Sure. One of the things that I think, because this is money and it's so personal, people don't realize that the people at the IRS are just people. They're just people going into their job and their job happens to be trying to investigate taxpayers, trying to collect money. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are people just like you and I. They wake up on the wrong side of the bed. You know, their their kid spills milk at breakfast. Their kid wins some big award. Some days they come into the office happy. Some days they come into the office unhappy. And they're just regular folks doing a job. They don't get a percentage of the money that they collect or the money that they find. They're all on salary. So I have found that in my career, treating people on the phone, treating people in person from the IRS with respect, treating them like I'd like to be treated is by far the best way to go about it. Yelling and screaming at people, getting angry at them, calling them names, firing off letters that are that are vindictive and angry. It, it doesn't really help my client. It might make me feel better. It might make my client feel better, but it's not going to help us. You just have to work with them like they're regular folks because they are regular folks. This is just a job they have that people don't like, but regular people just like you and me. So the old adage, you get more with honey than you do with vinegar still applies. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and sometimes it's complicated with clients because they want the vinegar. They want you to go after the IRS. And I don't find that to be as productive. Yeah. If they feel they've been wronged or, or singled out or unfairly picked on, then they want to, they want to reciprocate that in some cases. Yeah, Absolutely. Just, yeah, it doesn't work. Okay, so we're talking about what happens when someone gets in that situation, but just on a high level, is there something business owners that you either counsel them on or what they can do to avoid being put in this situation to begin with? Is it sure. that they get lax on their bookkeeping or what What do you kind of see as being some easy things that they can avoid to ever, ever being put in the situation? One of the things that I found is that business owners are good at the thing that they do. They're good at making the widget. They're good at selling the widget. They're good at advising people what to do with the widget. But the back office, the bookkeeping, the accounting, that's not why they went into business. They went into business because they had an idea, because they wanted to sell something. And so what I find is that while they're very good at what they do, they're very, very not good at the accounting and the bookkeeping. So I tell people, hire a bookkeeper at a minimum, hire a, a partial CFO at a minimum, hire a CPA firm to do your taxes every year, hire a third party payroll company or a PEO to do your payroll so that you can get that out of, out of your office. Uh, people make enormous mistakes when they have control over their own payroll, withholding and sending it to the IRS. Either they do it wrong or they have a down month or a down quarter and they borrow from that money with a plan of paying it back the next month, and that just pyramids. But if you have a third party doing it, you don't have the opportunity, uh, you don't face the risk to do that. So I always recommend uh, some type of financial outsourcing, certainly payroll. Financial advisors like yourself, I think, are great because you can plan for the future. Those are the things that, at a minimum, I make sure people do. Um, When they hire me, I always bring a CPA on board, if not to assist me, to help the client going forward. I think it's imperative because what you as a business owner want to do, the reason you got into business is to run that business, to sell the widget, to talk to people about it, to do what you do. 
not to manage bank accounts, not to manage payroll. Those are things that that are very specialized skill sets. Yeah. And people that are great at one thing aren't necessarily great at another thing. Yeah. Uh, look at a lot of NFL or NBA owners. They're very good at making the money to buy the team, but they don't know how to run the team very well. It's the same thing with the business owners that I deal with. They're great at doing the thing that they want to do, but the receipts, the back office, we need to outsource that to make sure that it gets done right. Yeah. And what business owner likes to be involved in HR? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So that leads me into my next question. Maybe without sharing any confidential information mm-hmm. or personal details, maybe you can talk on a high level about one of your more satisfying client experiences, maybe what they were facing and then how you helped to get them out of the situation or make it go easier than if they had gone it alone? Sure. So there's two things I can think of. One is actually a client from about 10 years ago that I still keep in touch with, maybe even more than 10 years ago. Uh, He was uh, a wealthy man who had worked at a business for a number of years, was very high up in an international business. Uh, And he and his wife loved horses. They had a horse farm. And horse farms are something the IRS just doesn't like. Horse farms, anything having to do with horses tends to lose money. Uh, and what people who have a lot of money do and a lot of income coming in do is they offset that income with the losses from anything having to do with horses. Uh, and there's a, a kind of, uh, there's a section of the tax code and it's called the hobby loss provision where the IRS will come in and say, no, no, that horse farm wasn't really a business. It was a hobby. You don't get to take the deductions. Uh, and so they'll come in and look at three or four years of, of horse farming expenditures And people will typically have a lot of money because if you don't have a horse farm, I'll tell you, it's very expensive to operate a horse farm, especially if you're trying to make it into a business or trying to make it look like it's a business. Um, The IRS actually has a a nine-factor test to help it decide whether it's a business or not, which is crazy having a nine-factor test. But that's yeah, not they're the, only at they're only at two factor authentication right now for <laughs> websites. So we've got there are some other things. <laughs> there are some other things that are twenty factor tests. It's, oh wow! It's amazing. Okay. So I worked with this guy, and we actually won the case. And we we stayed friends. I was living in 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 a different state at the time, uh, and he lived about three hours away. And he would invite me up to his farm, and my wife and I would stay there. We'd have dinner with he and his wife, and it was a great experience because he was really doing what he said he was doing. He was really trying hard, but you don't make money in the horse business for the most part, unless you're actually able to win some races or to do a lot of breeding uh, or you have such a huge farm that enough people are coming in that it it pays for the the real estate. So that was one example. A more recent example involves somebody uh, who got divorced and it was actually his divorce lawyer who called me And there were some issues about whether the alimony he was paying was deductible or not. There was a change in the law a few years ago about whether alimony being paid was deductible or not and receiving it, whether it was taxable or not. And his divorce happened right around that time period. So he was paying a lot of money to his soon-to-be ex-wife, and the IRS was saying it was not deductible. And the way that the divorce lawyer had set things up was done in a way specifically so it would be deductible. Mm. So we had a, a lengthy talk with the auditors who disagreed with us. We had to file a petition in tax court. And then the lawyer who was assigned to the case was very reasonable. We had a great conversation. We gave them all the documentation they wanted. And at the end of the day, the IRS settled the entire case. And it was not only important for that year, 
Um, but whatever happened in that year was going to happen going forward for as long as this man was paying alimony. And so it wasn't in that one year, it was only a few months that he was paying alimony. It wasn't a big issue in that year, but it was going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars he was paying over some period of time. So an enormous amount of tax. And because we were able to win in that one year with a small amount of issue, we're probably going to have saved him upwards of a million dollars or more of tax uh, over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, It's a fantastic result for him. And it shows the collegiality that I was talking about beforehand in the relationships. I was able to help him because his divorce lawyer called me because I've gotten to know the divorce lawyer over, over the years and gotten, and and we go out together for breakfast and coffee every so often. And we refer cases back and forth to each other. And that's important to get to know all kinds of people uh, and have these relationships um, because that's, that's how a lot of cases come to you is from people that know you. So those are two examples of a, a high up business executive with a lot of money at stake in one year, another executive with a little bit of money at stake in one year, uh, but it would go on to be a lot of money in future years. Um, both came out successful. I, I will say, you know, prior success doesn't guarantee future success, but it's really a great feeling to win a case and to help somebody out. And not just because of the win, everybody likes winning, but to know that my win helps somebody else save money, do things they want to do in life. It's a great feeling. And, and I think for myself anyway, that's why the losses actually hurt more than the wins because we feel the law. Lo- I feel the losses so personally, because I feel like I haven't accomplished something for my client uh, and the wins. I feel a little bit of a, of a happiness because of the win, but I'm happier because I've helped my client do something. Yeah. And I think that's for me anyway, that's because I, I like my clients. I like dealing with my clients. I try to get along with them really well. And I don't have many clients, certainly not anymore, uh, that I don't get along with. I've learned over the years that there are a lot of clients out there. There are a lot of potential clients out there. And my day is going to be judged in part internally by how I have to deal with people. So I I, I deal with clients that I like uh, and I'm very happy for them when they win. And I'm, I'm extraordinarily disappointed in myself. And for whatever reason, I'm not able to win. Yeah. So does that client have a horse named Brian now? or <laughs> I don't think he owns the horse farm anymore. Oh, okay. You can get back to me on that. You can find out. I wouldn't be surprised. All right. So we were talking before we went on air um, outside of your practice, but still in professional vein. There's something that you're really passionate about with your pro bono work. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. A few years ago, a friend of mine asked me if I was interested in doing some pro bono work with the what's called the appellate guardian ad litem uh, program. A guardian ad litem is someone who's assigned by the court to represent a child when there's a case going on that involves uh, the children or the, or the parents. Uh, the cases that I'm involved in are typically termination of parental rights cases mm, okay. where a local department of social services has come in. And usually after years of investigating and years of trying to not do so, they've decided to move forward and terminate parental rights. I come in at the appellate level, not the trial level. So whenever I come in, it's typically the situation of the court has already decided to terminate the parental rights and the father or the mother or both uh, appeal that decision because they don't want to lose their children. Uh, The cases are are often heartbreaking. Parents in jail, parents on drugs, a lot of abuse, a lot of neglect. It's reading the transcripts and reading the reports is it's really not an enjoyable process. 
Uh, and I get to come in and almost always argue on behalf of the child why the termination should stay in place. Most of the cases I'm involved in, they've already been living in foster care with someone for a couple of years who wants to adopt them, or there's a grandmother or an aunt or an uncle who they've been living with who wants to keep them living there. So this isn't somebody who, once the parental rights are terminated, is going to not have any place to go. Their life has effectively been better because now they're living someplace else. And one of my jobs uh, is to try to keep it that way. And I work with the Department of Social Services lawyer. Typically, there's a a lawyer assigned to represent the father or mother or both. Uh, And we go to the Court of Appeals or for a time in North Carolina, those cases went straight to the North Carolina Supreme Court. And sometimes they're they're purely factual issues. Uh, Given all these facts, were there enough facts so that the court did not terminate the parental rights improperly? But a lot of times um, there's purely legal issues. Uh, the very first case I had uh, essentially was a case that only involved the law. Did the court that terminated rights have the authority to terminate the rights of this particular person? No one argued about any of the underlying facts or what it was a father in this case, what the father had done. It was purely a question of did this particular court have the authority to terminate parental rights? And in their interesting cases, I usually have one or two going on at a time. So I'll usually handle two or three during a year. Uh, it's very different from the tax work that I, that I do. Yeah. It's much more, much more emotional. You grow very close to the case because you read about what's happened to these, these kids. And sometimes they're, they're two, three, four-month-old babies, uh, which is awful enough. But sometimes it's 13, 14-year-old kids. And, that, and that's sad in its very own way because they know what's happening, but they're not old enough or big enough or strong enough to do what needs to be done, whether it's mm-hmm. to leave the house, whether it's to find a relative. It, it's difficult cases, and it's, it's very satisfying to be able to help kids that way. I've always, yeah. I worked in a child advocacy clinic when I was in law school uh, doing similar type of work. And so there's part of me that spends all my time, all day, trying to save businesses and wealthy people money, uh, not pay taxes. But then there's this part of a day or a week or a month that I get to spend helping kids have a better life. Mm-hmm. And that it really speaks to my heart. And it's really something that I enjoy doing. In those cases, particularly, it's a really great feeling when an opinion comes down that says the kids' rights are, are the parental rights are still going to be terminated mm-hmm. and the child is going to be in a safe place. And you, you really feel great when you feel like you've done something to affect the, the entire life of a child and perhaps a family. Yeah, you change the trajectory of the person's life, hopefully for the Absolutely. Better. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, Let's switch gears a little bit. I'm curious what you kind of see looking out on the horizon in the future, what what you feel like is your biggest opportunity for your practice. Sure. Cryptocurrency is impacting every area of the law and taxes is not going to be any different. Mm -hmm. Um, Buying, selling cryptocurrencies, NFTs, all kinds of, you know, anything in the metaverse, that's going to be a big issue coming up the next few years of how those are are taxed, what the ramifications are. Congress passed a law a few years ago that changed the way audits and litigation deal with partnerships. Those are going to be a big issue going forward. If you're a business owner involved in a partnership, um, there are specific things that your partnership agreement needs to say to make sure that procedure-wise, if and when the IRS comes, there's a process in place to do what the law requires you to do. I mentioned conservation easements. Uh, those are still going to be a big issue, but particularly in the South, 
uh, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, Florida, particularly, those are, are not going away. Those are some of the things that I'm seeing in the next few years that are going to keep me very, very busy. In addition, the IRS has just hired, was planning on hiring by this fall, a few hundred more criminal investigators, uh, which means there's going to be criminal investigations that are happening in the next few years. And, and I haven't t- really talked about that a lot. That process is completely different. Obviously, it's not just about money. People might go to jail. So yeah. there's a, a different way those cases are handled and a different thought process uh, and a different procedure. But that's going to happen a lot more. There are a lot of investigations into all the laws that took place uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, PPP loans, um, all the ERC money that came out to businesses. It's the IRS that's doing a lot of that investigating, trying to make sure that money was used the way it was supposed to be used. And we see in our firm that the next year or two or three, that's going to be a big issue as well. Mm. Okay. All right. So to be continued on that. Um, Now, on the flip side of that, Brian, I'm wondering what you see as kind of your biggest challenge or obstacle that you want to overcome or is yet to be overcome in your practice? The thing that that I spend most of my time on is is two things. One, actually doing work and dealing with clients and dealing with the government. And two, going out and, and speaking to people and getting to know people, whether it's financial advisors like yourself, CPAs, small business owners, other lawyers, to make sure that people know that I'm out there. What I do is a, a very niche practice. I mean, there's all of the law, and then you get down to the tax world, and then there's this much smaller group of people that do what I do. And where I live, there aren't a whole lot of people that do what I do. So getting out and making sure people know that when the IRS comes, when the IRS calls, when the IRS sends you a letter, there's someone that you can connect with. I spend a lot of time doing that. And not just with individuals themselves, But what I've learned over my career is, unlike a lot of other things that business owners go through, they don't talk about tax problems. They might be talking about a deal at lunch or about a lawsuit they're involved in over lunch, but they're never going to be talking about the IRS coming in or or the financial difficulties. The people that know about that are their lawyers, their bankers, their financers, their CPAs. So I spend a lot of time working with them. And and COVID's made that a little more difficult, obviously. Um, There's far fewer in-person get-togethers. For me personally, making sure that my network of referral sources, the people that I know, the the accountants in town, the bankers, the financial folks, that they know that there's someone who can help their clients if something comes up, that's what I spend a lot of time doing as well. And it's it's been more difficult recently. It's it's a lot more Zoom meetings. It's a lot more phone calls, which makes it a little less personal, I think. It's, It's great to see someone like I'm seeing you right now. But there's something different about going out to lunch or going out to coffee or having breakfast with someone and really looking them really closely in the eye and, and getting to know them as a person and, and helping them understand what I do and learning what they do and trying to figure out how we might work together going forward. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well said. So if people want to learn more about you or contact mm-hmm. you, what was the best way for them to do that? Two ways. Obviously, they can go on LinkedIn, uh, look me up uh, and send me a DM. That'd be great. Also, my firm's website is www.foxrothschild.com, F-O-X-R-O-T-H-S-C-H-I-L-D.com. Do a search for my name and my bio will come up with uh, about seven different ways to reach out to me. Okay. All right. Not as many 
ways as there are <laughs> the, what is it nine factors or 20 nine factor hobby loss yes yeah maybe maybe we'll do another show just on the factors and the nine and the 20 i'd like to get some insight <laughs> on that <laughs> all right brian listen i want to thank you for taking the time to be here with me today this is very informative it's a real pleasure to interview you and we've been here with brian barnhart from Fox Rothschild. Thank you all for listening and watching the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors, where we're hoping to raise the retirement confidence of everyday people to another level, one show at a time. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Be well, stay safe. See you next time. You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.